Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Congressional Republicans pressing ahead with plans to secure the border, even if it means shutting down the government to do it. A politics reporter gives us insight into a likely response from Democrats as the deadline nears. Four border crossings reopen as illegal immigrant numbers drop. What's behind the drop-off and have lawmakers visiting the border played any role? China developing neurostrike weapons and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis reflecting on the tragic death of his younger sister. Here are the highlights of the Nikki Haley and DeSantis town hall meetings. A push to remove former President Donald Trump from ballots in two more states. Who is the liberal advocacy group behind the challenges? Recent attacks by Russia on Ukraine were carried out with weapons supplied by North Korea. Thus, according to new information from the White House, what are the implications? The Iranian president quickly blamed Israel after a pair of bombs killed dozens in Iran, but ISIS now claims responsibility for the deadly attack. Jason Perry has the latest updates. A freed hostage shares her story of being held by Hamas along with her two daughters for nearly 50 days. Stay tuned to hear her harrowing journey. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Today is January 5th. Yes, the end of the week. And you know, there's a twist to the Iran blast. The Jerusalem Post reports that the media associated with Iran's military says that Israel put ISIS up to it. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm no expert, but it just, to me, it sounds like they're trying to uh, pin the blame. Yeah, and it's basically just because the way that they wrote their letter claiming responsibility. And the U.S. says that this is definitely consistent with ISIS's modus operandi. Right. Uh, today's top story, though, is in the U.S., even as Senate negotiators are trying to work out a bipartisan plan to the deal with the border crisis, some Republicans are now trying to use leverage elsewhere to meet their demands. Some bluntly saying, shut down the border or shut down the government. This is Congress is coming up on a fast approaching deadline to fund the government. NTD's congressional correspondent Melina Weiskup reports. We see a fierce showdown taking shape around funding the government. Up until this point, Ukraine aid has been the main source of leverage that House Republicans have used to make demands for border policy change. But now it's looking like keeping the lights on here in the U.S. government may be dependent upon changes at the border. Congressman Chip Roy of Texas leading the effort. Ranchers, local law enforcement, local leaders, and they all told me the same thing. Shut down the border or shut down the government. That's it. If they can't love our country and the citizens enough and respect our laws, then we need to cut off funding. We need to shut the government down. Lawmakers will return from their trip to Eagle Pass, Texas, here to Congress, facing a fast approaching January 19th deadline to fund the government to avoid a partial government shutdown. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson has not directly endorsed the idea of shutting down the government in order to force border policy changes, but he has essentially said that their demands are the only way to directly and effectively address the issue at the border. H.R. 2 
is the necessary ingredient. HR2 is a bill that the Republican-led House passed several months ago. It would restart construction of the border wall, raise the bar for asylum claims, also return to a Trump-era policy known as re Remain in Mexico. All proposals which Senate negotiators say are going nowhere fast. I can't get a Democratic Senate to be able to agree with that at all, and I can't get a White House to be able to agree with that. My understanding is that HR2 doesn't have Democratic votes in the House or in the Senate. The White House says that the solution here is for Congress to give the DHS more money and resources to address the issue. However, Republicans are concerned that that money will only be used to quickly process more illegal immigrants and release them into the country rather than be used to stem the flow. This battle over border policy has once only stalled Ukraine aid, but now the entire U.S. government may be dependent on it. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Epic Times reporter Lawrence Wilson joins me now to discuss the brewing standoff over border security and government funding. Lawrence, good morning and thank you for coming on the show. Great to be here, thank you. So what are Democrats likely going to do if the GOP demands border reforms equivalent to H.R. 2 with changes to asylum and parole that Democrats have said are non-starters in exchange for a vote to keep the government funded? Well, there's likely to be a standoff over that. Uh, Democrats have not been willing to budge on the provisions of H.R. 2, which uh, Republicans see as just common sense reforms to close down the illegal traffic over the border. And they're likely to put up a fight about it. Now, the GOP does not have the muscle uh, in terms of numbers uh, to push these reforms through the Senate. Uh, but they could have the votes in the House to block legislation on funding. So uh, we're hearing now that uh, Speaker Johnson may reach out directly to President Biden to try to get some movement on this, but really uncertain at this point. Right, yeah, and you talk about a standoff in the works and Democrats not willing to budge. Is there any common ground that they may be able to put forward the Democrats to appease Republicans and get some status there to make them happy enough to get the government keep running? Well, some Republican congressmen told us down at Eagle Pass that uh, they were willing to compromise on some aspects of H.R. 2, but Remain in Mexico is really the, the, the big stick point for Republicans. They also want to see changes to asylum. So it, there could be some common ground, but so far they haven't been able to find it. Remember, they've been negotiating on this for well over a month in the Senate and haven't been able to come together. So this is a tough one. Yeah, and this is really serious. I mean, the government funding that involves things like Veteran Affairs Department, agriculture, energy, transportation, housing. So, I mean, it covers a lot of things across the board. And Representative Chip Roy was even saying that he knows that he'll be accused of provoking a shutdown if they go through with this. And he's willing to say that he's going to support essential services like border security as well. So do you think that their conservatives are pushing ahead now instead of when they passed the CR back in November for any particular reason? Well, I think they feel a growing sense of urgency about this. The situation is getting worse and worse. We've seen uh, record numbers uh, almost every day in illegal traffic over the border. And I think uh, Republicans are just saying, look, this is a national security crisis and we need action now. So I think it's just a matter of the growing urgency of the situation that they're upping the ante on getting something done. Yeah, well, it's a mess down there. I mean, there's literally tons of trash, border 
points of entry were closed, now some are reopening, so there's a lot that needs to be done here. How do you think this is going to play out in the end? Well, that's always hard to say. Nobody likes a government shutdown, but this is really a, a difficult subject. One lawmaker told us that gun control was easier to deal with than uh, the immigration issues. Uh, Chuck Schumer has been saying they're making progress. Uh, as you know, Republicans are saying not so much. Uh, Senators Lankford and Cinema came back early this week to try to continue working uh, on an agreement in the Senate. Uh, it's worth noting that at this point, Speaker Johnson has not joined the rhetoric over shutting down the government. Uh, it could be he's levy, letting some others levy this as a kind of threat to see if they can shake loose some action. We just have to wait and see if this is a bargaining tactic or if they're really willing to go through with it. Right. It's very important to have the leader behind any plans there. Lawrence Wilson, national politics reporter at the Epic Times. Thank you. U.S. Customs and Border Protection have reopened four southern border crossings as reports of illegal immigration have notably dropped. This comes as more than five dozen House Republicans traveled to the southern border this week. Entity's Jason Blair is on the ground to give us some of the latest updates. Yeah, I'm here in Eagle Pass, Texas. I'm out front of a holding area where a lot of the immigrants that cross over the border illegally are taken here. Uh, now, as you can see, there's really not much going on. When I'm told that normally this place has been packed with people, uh, we were also here yesterday, pretty much the same situation. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of activity. However, we have seen some people today and yesterday cross over, uh, but it's just been pretty slow compared to how things used to be, I'm told. Now, just uh, on Wednesday, Representative Tony Gonzalez hosted about 64 Congress members that came over here. He did say at a, at a press conference that two weeks ago, they were seeing thousands of people and things have just really changed. As far as to why that is, uh, there has been some speculation that the Mexican government did make some changes to try to curb the influx over to the U.S. border. I did hear some people um, around the area here say that they are a little skeptical that it's just some kind of you know New Year's break that things are going to go back to normal in the in the coming days. I did reach out to the Department of Homeland Security see if they had any comments on the sudden change. I have not heard back from them yet. Uh, so I suppose we'll just see if things, uh, you know, change in the coming days. We'll just have to, you know, see what happens. Thank you so much for your report, Jason. Yes, and now New York City is planning to sue bus companies for transporting illegal immigrants to the Big Apple. It's the latest development in an ongoing dispute between the state of Texas and Democrat-run cities across the U.S. Here's Mayor Eric Adams speaking on the lawsuit yesterday. These companies have violated state law by not paying the cost of caring for these migrants. And that's why we are suing to recoup approximately $700 million already spent to care for migrants bust here in the last two years by the state of Texas. Texas has been sending illegal immigrants to New York, Chicago, and other sanctuary cities across the U.S. Adams yesterday said New York City will continue doing its part in supporting immigrants, but he added that the city can't bear the costs anymore. Adams says Abbott is trying to overwhelm New York's social services system, calling it a political ploy.
And more Jeffrey Epstein-related court filings were unsealed last night. The release stems from a lawsuit related to the convicted pedophile who died in jail before facing trial on federal sex trafficking charges. The second batch is made up of 19 documents after 40 were disclosed Wednesday. Names include Epstein's accusers, prominent business people, politicians, and more. Appearing in the documents doesn't necessarily imply wrongdoing, as Epstein was part of high-profile circles. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the second release. Being named in the unsealed documents does not necessarily mean someone was accused of or committed wrongdoing. Well-known names in Thursday's release include former President Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, renowned lawyer Alan Dershowitz, and the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. Clinton is not accused of wrongdoing, but came up in an unsealed email from 2011 between UK reporter Sharon Churcher and Epstein accuser Virginia Gouffray. Court filings show Gouffray alleged Clinton pressured Vanity Fair magazine not to write sex trafficking articles about Epstein. Gouffray says in the email that she was concerned about sharing her story because, quote, B. Clinton walked into VF and threatened them about his good friend J.E. Vanity Fair's former editor, Grading Carter, told CNN the incident categorically did not happen. A Clinton spokesman said he had no new comment and that it had been nearly 20 years since President Clinton last had contact with Epstein. Epstein accuser Johanna Schoberg alleged to have met late pop star Michael Jackson at Epstein's house in Palm Beach. She did not accuse him of any wrongdoing. Some names are still redacted in the unsealed documents. One example is a 2011 email sent by Churcher to a blacked-out recipient. It makes reference to someone being trafficked to, quote, men including two of the world's most respected politicians. That's followed by two names covered by solid black bars. Arthur A. Dalla, a lawyer for Epstein associate and convicted sex trafficker Jelaine Maxwell, told News Nation Tuesday his client has nothing to say about the filings being rolled out, stating the overall crime is all about men abusing women for a long period of time, but only one person is in jail, Maxwell. Anti-sex trafficking advocate Jack O'Buyans told NTD the spirit of the release is wrong, as it was only released as part of a defamation settlement. The documents are not being released to combat human trafficking. The documents are not necessarily released to to subpoena and prosecute. Buyan says it's now up to prosecutors and plaintiffs to dig deeper and investigate Epstein's relationships. To now pick up these little information bits that are bleeding out, like Ghislaine Maxwell flying her helicopter picking up, you know, Bill Clinton. New information, okay, let's go corroborate that little piece of information. But it's not like there's a trove of district attorneys standing ready to prosecute. Buyan's questions why there's never been a single buyer on a witness stand, despite Epstein's sex trafficking incarceration and Maxwell's conviction. That doesn't make sense. You can't say they trafficked human beings, but there are no buyers. There is no trafficking without buyers. It's a, it's a crime of supply and demand, and because the demand is so high, there was supply. And that's what the names should lead to. More Epstein-related documents are expected to be unsealed in the coming days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, ISIS has claimed responsibility for the deadly attack in Iran that killed almost 100 people. And things are getting more tense across Israel's border with Lebanon. Israel's defense minister unveils plans for the next phase of war. And the top U.S. diplomat Antony Blinken returns to the region to ease tensions. Over 130 hostages are still held captive by Hamas, including six Americans. We hear from a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel to get an update on the situation.
Good to have you back. The White House confirmed yesterday that North Korea has supplied Russia with short-range ballistic missiles used for its war effort in Ukraine. This according to newly declassified intelligence. National Security Spokesman John Kirby told reporters the United States will raise the issue with the United Nations Security Council. Kirby referred to the arms transfer as a significant and concerning escalation. In return for its support, we assess that Pyongyang is seeking military assistance from Russia, including fighter aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, armored vehicles, ballistic missile production equipment or materials, and other advanced technologies. He added that the United States would impose additional sanctions against those facilitating the arms deals. As for their inventory now, um, uh, again, I want to be careful here, but we, I would just put it this way, that we haven't seen anything that would tell us that Russia is not still reliant on munitions and missiles from, from North Korea. Kirby confirmed Russian forces launched at least one of these North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine on December 30th, which landed in an open field, followed by multiple missile attacks on January 2nd as part of a broader wave of heavy airstrikes. Kirby did not specify the exact type of missiles, but said they had a range of about 550 miles. Other countries, including Britain and South Korea, have condemned the use of the missiles. South Korea previously reported in November that North Korea may have supplied the ballistic missiles to Russia as part of a larger arms deal, which also included anti-tank and anti-air missiles, artillery and mortar shells and rifles. Both Moscow and Pyongyang have denied conducting any arms deals, but vowed last year to deepen military relations. Reports out of Ukraine state Russia recently launched some of its most intense strikes on its soil since the start of the war almost two years ago. On Tuesday, Kyiv said that Russia had launched hundreds of attack drones and missiles of various kinds at cities across Ukraine since December 29th. Cost MNS, NTD News. The U.S. Navy says a Houthi drone launched from Yemen blew up a couple of miles from U.S. and commercial ships in the Red Sea yesterday. This just hours after the White House threatened the Iran-backed group with military action if it didn't stop its attacks. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says there has been 25 Houthi attacks against merchant vessels in the area since November 18th. Ryder says the U.S. is committed to deterring further attacks and providing safeguards in the waterway. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced Operation Prosperity Guardian last month. The U.S.-led coalition is set up to protect commercial vessels using the trade route. Head of the U.S. Navy Operations Vice Admiral Brad Cooper said the multi-nation task force is defensive in nature and separate from any military action the U.S. might take against the Houthis. Here's the Pentagon spokesman on the Houthi threat yesterday. Do not seek any broader conflict with with Iran. We don't seek conflict uh, with with these groups, but we're not going to uh, stand aside and allow our forces to be uh, threatened uh, without ensuring that we're properly protecting them. It's something that we're all taking seriously and that requires collective action. ISIS has now claimed responsibility for the devastating bomb attack in Iran, which killed almost 100 people. Meanwhile, things are getting more tense across Israel's border with Lebanon. This comes after a reported Israeli strike near Beirut that killed a Hamas leader. 
NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Just hours after the terrorist attack in Iran on Wednesday that killed almost 100 people, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi blamed Israel, and he also vowed for revenge against Israel for the attack. But on Thursday, the Islamic State, a Sunni terrorist group also known as ISIS-K, claimed responsibility for the deadly attack in the predominantly Shiite country of Iran. In a statement posted on Telegram, the Islamic State said that two of their Islamic State members detonated their explosive belts in the crowd in apparent suicide bombings. The terrorist group has a bit of history with Iran as the Islamic State previously set off a pair of bombs in 2017 targeting Iran's parliament. National security spokesperson John Kirby said this on Thursday about Wednesday's attack. I haven't seen anything that, uh, that indicates there's a direct link to what's going on in Gaza and with uh, the attack in, in Iran um, on the anniversary of Soleimani's death. Meanwhile, tensions have been escalating across Israel's northern border with Lebanon after an apparent Israeli strike near Beirut that killed a Hamas leader. On Thursday, Israel Defense Forces reported several launches coming from Lebanese territory. And in response, the IDF struck at the source of the launches and also struck a launch post and an observation post. This Israeli woman's home is just one mile away from Israel's border with Lebanon. She's currently living in a hotel in a safer area, but she decided to visit her home and give this message. It's, it's scary, I must say. And we need to be sure that we're safe in order to come and live here again in our homes. So this is uh, our request from our government, from our army. Please make us safe. And on Thursday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. Netanyahu told him that Israel is committed to achieving its goals in the war. And for that, they'll apply maximum power and precision everywhere that's needed. And Graham responded by saying, we have your back. Jason Perry, NTD News. Israel's defense minister outlined some plans for the next phase of war in Gaza yesterday. The strategy includes a more targeted approach in the north, with a focus on targeting Hamas leaders in the south. The country's defense minister stated northern operations would include destroying tunnels, air and ground strikes, raids and special forces operations. He also said Gaza would be run by Palestinians after the war as long as there was no threat to Israel. Israel's military has been releasing some reservists so they can go back to their jobs. The IDF says it struck over 100 targets across Gaza overnight. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East in an effort to ease tensions. The diplomatic trip is expected to focus on preventing the conflict from widening. Stops include Israel, Turkey, Qatar, Egypt and Jordan. This is Blinken's fourth trip to the region in three months. And we are now bringing in Ariel Lightstone for more on the war in Gaza. He's a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Good morning. It's good to have you back. Now, first, let's talk about Blinken's visit. What do you think his message will be to Israel this time? Well, I hope that his message will be strong and resolute. I'm concerned is that his message instead will be half and half, meaning half we're with you but be careful what you do. And I think that's the wrong message. Anything other than complete and total clarity, wipe out Hamas and bring the hostages home 
is a poor message, and this will be the repeat fourth trip of giving two different messages at the same time. Tell me more about that. How important is such public support from the U.S. to Israel? It's critical. The divide in the Middle East is which superpower is on your side, and unless the United States of America is firmly on the side of Israel, Israel then has a loneliness to it, and that loneliness not only hurts its morale, but it also hurts its ability to execute its plan. It will do it. It's just a question of how long it will take and how many more casualties there will be on the way. Now, he's also heading to Qatar. Do you expect any progress in restarting the hostage negotiations through that? I don't have a lot of optimism for that until Israel pushes even further into Gaza. I think Hamas is only going to negotiate now from a position of weakness, and I think they feel that they are strong in the tunnels, and I feel that they feel that they are strong in public opinion where they are getting all the benefits from having the innocent Palestinian civilians be killed above because Hamas has placed them there as uh, human shields. So therefore, they're in a comfortable position right now. And without more pressure, I don't believe that there will be success in completing the hostage negotiation. And what about al-Aruri's uh, killing? What kind of impact did that have on the progress, if any? I, I think it helps. I think the answer is, is, first of all, I think the United States of America, we have $10 million bounty on his head. Nobody should shed a tear uh, for his demise. The only concern is it took so long to get there. But it's a very clear message from Israel that if you intend to murder, rape, and behead Israeli citizens, Israel will find you wherever it is that you are. It's also a warning to Lebanon that don't get cocky and don't think that you can have these back and forth shots across the border without any repercussions. Israel is still the dominant military in the region, and at a time of its choosing, it will deal with the people who are causing terror. Interesting. Now, you just mentioned um, Hamas being in uh, among civil hiding among civilians, of course, as we all know. But just like Gazan civilians are in constant danger this way, how dangerous is it for the hostages? How worried should people be, or are people worried maybe uh, about that? these hostages might also become casualties because of Israeli attacks. I think everybody needs to be incredibly concerned for the hostages. Uh, the Red Cross still hasn't visited them. Uh, maybe even hostages is the wrong word even for them. They are receiving zero treatment, zero connectivity, and the international organizations, including the United States of America, have failed miserably. We have six American citizens that have been away from their families for 91 days. And that is reprehensible. How are we the supreme superpower without the ability to at least get a signal of life from our six hostages, in addition to the other 130 hostages who do not deserve for a half a second what's been happening to them? There is a child who turned one years old yesterday as a hostage in Gaza. One quarter of their life has been spent in a tunnel. How this is not the biggest issue for civilization today still continues to boggle my mind. And Israel will have to prosecute the war as best as humanly possible. And Hamas will absolutely use these hostages as human shields. If they don't care about their own uh, civilians, the Palestinians, they sure as heck don't care about the Israelis. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Arya Lightstone. I always appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Stay with us, voters in two more states. Join the effort to remove former President Trump from the ballot. Hear about the liberal advocacy group behind the challenges.
Nikki Haley comes out strong for Israel, and Governor Ron DeSantis says bad policies are taking away the American dream. Here are the highlights of two town halls. Welcome back. More attempts to keep former President Donald Trump off the ballot. Groups of voters from Illinois and Massachusetts yesterday filed motions to remove Trump from the 2024 ticket. The two states joined other states where the former president faces a challenge to his candidacy under the 14th Amendment's so-called insurrectionist ban. In Illinois, the challenge asks the Illinois Board of Elections to bar Trump from appearing on the ballot, citing his perceived role in the January 6th Capitol breach. The liberal advocacy group Free Speech for People stands behind the challenges in both states. The group has also backed similar efforts in Oregon, Michigan, and Minnesota. The challenges come as the Supreme Court is widely expected to review a state court ruling in Colorado, which found that Trump is ineligible to run for office. Any decision from the justices could settle the matter for the entire nation. Trump will remain on the Colorado ballot at least until the appeal is ruled on. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy signed a bill allowing 17-year-olds the right to vote in primaries. The bill, dubbed the New Voter Empowerment Act, was signed yesterday. It allows any registered voter who turns 17 by the time of a primary election to vote in that primary, but it only applies if they turn 18 on or before the next general election. Governor Murphy says the new law will help empower the next generation and strengthen our democracy. 19 other states in Washington, D.C. have similar laws. And with just 10 days to go to the Iowa caucuses, candidates are busy making pitches to voters. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley had back-to-back town-hall-style meetings in the Hawkeye State yesterday. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the highlights of what they discussed. The event, organized by CNN, features the two Republicans who have mounted the strongest challenge to former President Donald Trump. Unlike a staged debate, the town hall format allows candidates an opportunity to interact with voters without interruption from other candidates. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley expressed her strong support for Israel, saying America has to do three things for the country, speaking on CNN. We need to give them whatever they need whenever they need it. We need to eliminate Hamas, finish them so they can never do this horrific stuff again. And we need to do whatever it takes to bring our hostages home. On the border, Haley said Texas Governor Greg Abbott is doing all he can to stop the surge and expressed exasperation at the Biden administration for fighting him on that, trying to cut through the barbed wire he installed. America right now is acting like it's September 10th. We better remember what September 12th felt like because it only takes one. On China, Haley sounded the alarm on the communist regime expanding its military capability while infiltrating U.S. universities and buying up U.S. land. And now China's the lead developer of neurostrike weapons, weapons engineered, bless you, to change the mental capabilities of military commanders and segments of the population. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, speaking at his own CNN town hall event, says he's the only one running who's delivered on 100% of what he promised. All the people that are causing these problems, I'm the only one running that have beaten these people, whether it's the teachers union with school choice, whether it's beating Fauci on COVID, whether it's beating people like Soros on crime. 
DeSantis had a personal moment discussing the sudden death of his younger sister, Christina, in 2015 from a pulmonary embolism. Don't take it for granted. Tell your people close to you that you love them um, and just try to live your best life uh, every single day and understand ultimately every day is a gift from God. On the economy, the Florida governor says the American dream needs to be restored and that it starts with getting the country's fiscal house in order. It's almost cost prohibitive to raise kids uh, in this economy. That's taking the American dream away. The latest real clear polling averages in Iowa show former President Donald Trump comfortably in front with around 51 percent, DeSantis in second with almost 19 percent, and Haley in third with about 16 percent. While national poll averages have Trump with about 63 percent support, compared with DeSantis and Haley, both with about 11 percent. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former first son Eric Trump was in Iowa yesterday at a MAGA campaign event in support of his dad. The younger Trump emphasized what he sees as the accomplishments of his father's administration. He cited the low unemployment across racial and gender lines and celebrated what he called the largest tax cuts in U.S. history. He also said there was peace in the Middle East under former President Trump and that his father fought for health and religious freedom. Eric Trump then got his dad on the phone, seeming to please those in attendance. Say hi to the entire crowd. Well, I just want to thank everybody for being so loyal, for being so wonderful. And always remember, we got the farmers of Iowa, $28 billion. That's a lot of money. And I can't think about Joe Biden doing that. He wouldn't even think about it. So I just want to say I, I look forward to seeing you on Friday. We love you all, and I hope my son is doing a great job because he always has done a good job. Foreign governments allegedly made payments to former President Trump's businesses. A new report says those businesses received millions of dollars while Trump was in office. Trump's hotels and properties allegedly received almost $8 million during his presidency. That's according to this new report released yesterday by House Democrats titled White House for Sale. The report alleges that the money came from 20 different governments, but that most of it came from China. House Democrats on the Oversight Committee say the payments violate the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause. It bars federal officials from accepting gifts or payments from foreign countries without congressional approval. Republican Oversight Chairman James Comer responded to the report. He criticized Democrats for continuing their, quote, obsession with former President Trump. Trump's team denies any wrongdoing. They point to the Trump Organization donating about $450,000 in estimated profits from foreign governments to the U.S. Treasury, and Trump himself refusing to accept a paycheck during his time as president. Heading to break now, bomb threats targeting U.S. government buildings across the country for the second consecutive day. The FBI reacts. Can a government employee shut down free speech when they don't like the message? NTD spoke with an attorney and a women's rights advocate about a new lawsuit centered around charges of so-called misgendering.
Good morning and thanks for staying with us. For the second day in a row, state government buildings across the U.S. received bomb threats. Threats were made to multiple government buildings in Arkansas and Mississippi yesterday, causing building evacuations and bomb team deployments. There were also reports of similar threats yesterday to government buildings in Florida, Massachusetts and Maine. This new round of threats comes after at least eight state capitals received bomb threats on Wednesday. So far, the threats have all turned out to be hoaxes. The FBI said it will continue to gather, share and act upon threat information as it comes to their attention. Federal officials have said public servants across the government experienced a large spike in threats in recent years. And some tragic news, a middle school student was killed yesterday when a gunman opened fire at a high school in Perry, Iowa. Police received reports of an active shooter before classes started. Law enforcement arrived within seven minutes. A sixth grade student was killed and five other people were injured, according to Iowa authorities. They say the shooter, a 17-year-old student, also died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Investigators say officers found an improvised explosive device while searching the school. The investigation in the shooting is ongoing. Thursday was scheduled to be the first day of school for the new semester, according to the district's calendar. Classes today have been canceled. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy canceled a scheduled campaign event in the town and offered his prayers. A new twist in the Alec Murdoch case. It relates to an order signed by the South Carolina State Supreme Court. Murdoch was to file a motion for a new trial with the county clerk's office in Colleton, South Carolina. However, he's accusing Colleton County Clerk Rebecca Hill of jury tampering during his murder trial. He deny, Hill denies the accusations, but because of that, the state's chief justice said it would be inappropriate for new trial documents to be filed in Colleton County. Now they will be filed with the clerk of the Superior Court of South Carolina. A hearing on the jury tampering allegations is scheduled for January 29th. A new lawsuit in a dispute over so-called misgendering. The case centers around a library in California which shut down an event called Forum on Fair and Safe Sports for Girls. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with a guest speaker at the event and an attorney about the case. Attorneys with Alliance Defending Freedom and the Institute for Free Speech filed a lawsuit in December against Yolo County Library officials. They accused the officials of violating the First Amendment rights of several women's groups who met in a local library to discuss men and women's sports. Moms for Liberty and several parental rights and women's advocates are challenging library officials for removing them from a public building. If the NFL leave the building, the program is shut down. We're done. The event featured several speakers, including Sophia Lori, a former collegiate athlete. Lori says all she wanted to do when she was 10 years old was play college soccer. She says she knew she could achieve that as long as she worked hard and put in the effort. But it's not the same situation for current girls. Current 10-year-old girls will not have the ability to achieve those same dreams as long as men and boys are taking their spots on the team. And that's all I was able to share before getting shut down. A few minutes into Lori's speech, she says protesters began to interrupt her, shouting her down and accusing her of misgendering. Lori says the comment that men and boys are taking girls' spots on teams is what got the event shut down. Why am I being asked to leave?
Alliance Defending Freedom senior counsel Tyson Langhofer says it's not at the discretion of a government official like a public library employee to determine who gets to speak and who doesn't. The First Amendment makes it very clear that the government can't stop speech it simply doesn't like, but that's exactly what's happened here. Langhofer says when the government opens up a forum that the public can use to advance their ideas, they can't discriminate and choose which content can be presented and which can't. The very purpose of the First Amendment is to empower citizens to have the ability to engage in debate on really important topics. And this debate is raging throughout the country, throughout states, throughout school boards. As for Sophia Lori, she says she's continuing to fight for the issue of fair and safe sports for women and girls. She's promoting a ballot initiative called Protect Kids California, which aims to get protecting girls sports and spaces on the ballot in 2024. I hope this just reveals to people that at the end of the day, the answer is more speech and that a win on this for us is a win for every American to have the ability to speak out on their values and beliefs. NTD reached out to Yolo County Library for a comment on the lawsuit. We are still waiting to hear back from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up next, a freed Israeli hostage speaks out after being held by Hamas for over 50 days. She shares her harrowing experience and how she made it through with her two daughters after the break. I'm Don Ma in New York City, and we are NTD News. Good to have you back. Next, we have the story of a freed Israeli hostage who reveals what happened to her and her two young daughters while he held captive by Hamas for nearly 50 days. Brianna Goladriga has the report. They absolutely put on a show to dress me up in nice clothes and shoes before I was released when my girls and I were barefoot for 50 days and we were cold because we were wearing short sleeves in November. It's one big show. Doron Asher opening up and revealing what really happened to her and her two young daughters while held captive by Hamas for nearly 50 days. Once you got into Gaza, what happened? We got into our hiding place, an apartment that belonged to a family. We were inside the room without the ability to get out, of course, closed door, closed window. And after 16 days, they relocated us to another place, a so-called hospital. Did anyone tell you what was going on, why you were there? Were they members of Hamas? They didn't give us a lot of information. They mainly tried to say that Hamas wants to release us, but in Israel no one cares about us, which wasn't true. We didn't believe most of the stuff that they were saying. And of course, it wasn't true. Just over the border in Israel, Daron's husband Yoni never gave up hope. We are begging for your help. My babies, Raz and Aviv, doesn't have much time. I got to see how hell looks like. I don't know if there are any more tears left in me. Why his daddy is not coming? I'm afraid that they will forget me. I'm afraid that they will recognize. The stuff that they've seen on October 7th, I couldn't hide from them. It's like we were in a war movie. 
But after that, it was very important to me that they wouldn't feel danger. And I told them there are no terrorists anymore. And we are with good people who are guarding us until we can return home. Were they good to you? The people? They didn't physically harm me, but there was a lot of psychological warfare. Like what? That we won't return to live in the kibbutz because it's not our house, it's not the place where we belong. Did you know if they were Hamas or just citizens in Gaza? They didn't give me a lot of info about them. I don't even know their names. I guess that the father is with Hamas, but they didn't even give me much info. I just know he worked in Israel in the past, and that's how he knows Hebrew, and that's how we communicated. Were there other children there? Ken? Yes, he had children and grandchildren, and basically his children were watching us 24-7. I asked every day about my family, if they knew anything about Gadi, about my brother, about my brother's baby girl. They didn't give me any answers. Why do you think they moved you after 16 days? I think they tried to gather hostages together because the day that we arrived to this so-called hospital, other hostages arrived there as well. And that was the first time that I met other hostages. Why do you keep saying so-called hospital? A hospital needs to treat sick people. It doesn't hold hostages. Could you hear the IDF bombing? Did, did you know what was going on? And were you worried that by mistake that... that and you and your girls would have been in danger as Israel was trying to retrieve you? I heard the fighting, and yes, we were scared. The noises were very strong, very loud, but at least that's how we knew that something was going on in order to get us back home, to put the pressure on Hamas to release us. What did you fear the most when you were there? Surprisingly, it was the day that we were released. They were smuggling us out of the hospital, and they got us on a Hamas vehicle to get to a meeting point with the Red Cross. We waited a long time for the Red Cross, and we were very scared because we didn't know what was going on. No one gave us any info. Once the Red Cross vehicles had arrived, thousands of Gazans, thousands, children, elderly, everyone came in and started to climb on the cars and bang on the cars. I was holding my girls, and I was scared of a lynch mob. And this was the first time that Raz has said to me after a month and a half of me protecting her, Mommy, I'm scared. Today, the girls are back in kindergarten and with family therapy, for the most part, are readjusting well. There was one day that they saw a tractor here and they asked if the evil men are here. And I had to tell them, no, the tractor doesn't belong to the evil men. The evil men are in jail. And while they mourn their grandmother, Doron says the healing cannot really begin until all of the remaining hostages are released, including Gadi Moses. The world has to understand the reality that the hostages are in. I don't want to think about how they're treating men there, how they're treating the young women that are there. People who kidnap children and old people are not human. What an atrocity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I, I, especially with the kids there, and. You don't, I, I feel like you wouldn't really know what the actual psychological effect is. Only as time passes, you will find out, right? So yes, yeah, she's going to need some time to heal, yeah. and hopefully she gets all the resources that all she right. needs for that. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, we're heading to the second part of our broadcast in one minute, so stick with us. NTD News, the fastest-growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. 
We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Israel's defense minister unveils plans for the next phase of war in Gaza and top U.S. diplomat Antony Blinken is back in the region for the fourth time in three months. Another attack by Iran-backed Houthis in the Red Sea just hours after the U.S. and its allies issue a final warning. The Pentagon reacts. Recent attacks by Russia on Ukraine were carried out with weapons supplied by North Korea. This, according to new information from the White House, what are the implications? Voters in two more states join the effort to remove former President Donald Trump from the ballot. Hear about the liberal advocacy group behind the challenges. Artificial intelligence in 2024, what's on the horizon with this powerful tech? One application in the works is a way to reduce traffic on the roads. An executive at a development group brings us the outlook. Verizon settled a class action lawsuit yesterday for $100 million. Are you eligible to receive $100? How do you get your money? We have that information coming up for you. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning and welcome. Today is Friday, finally, January 5th. We're heading today to, today to today's top news, I shall say. Israel's defense minister outlined some plans for the next phase of war in Gaza yesterday. The strategy includes a more targeted approach in the north with a focus on targeting Hamas leaders in the south. The country's defense minister stated northern operations would include destroying tunnels, air and ground strikes, raids and special forces operations. He also said Gaza would be run by Palestinians after the war as long as there was no threat to Israel. Israel's military has been releasing some reservists so they can go back to their jobs. The IDF says it struck over 100 targets across Gaza overnight. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East in an effort to ease tensions. The diplomatic trip is expected to focus on preventing the conflict from widening. Stops include Israel, Turkey, Qatar, Egypt and Jordan. This is Blinken's fourth trip to the region in three months. And earlier, I spoke to Ariel Lightstone, a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, for more on the war in Gaza. I asked him about his recent trip to Gaza and the situation of the remaining hostages still held captive. I don't have a lot of optimism for that until Israel pushes even further into Gaza. I think Hamas is only going to negotiate now from a position of weakness, and I think they feel that they are strong in the tunnels. And I feel that they feel that they are strong in public opinion where they are getting all the benefits from having the innocent Palestinian civilians be killed above because Hamas has placed them there as uh, human shields. So therefore, they're in a comfortable position right now. And without more pressure, I don't believe that there will be success in completing the hostage negotiation. How dangerous is it for the hostages? How worried should people be? Or are people worried maybe uh, about that these hostages might also become casualties because of Israeli attacks. 
I think everybody needs to be incredibly concerned for the hostages. Uh, the Red Cross still hasn't visited them. Uh, maybe even hostage is the wrong word even for them. They are receiving zero treatment, zero connectivity, and, and the international organizations, including the United States of America, have failed miserably. We have six American citizens that have been away from their families for 91 days, and that is reprehensible. How are we the supreme superpower without the ability to at least get a signal of life from our six hostages, in addition to the other 130 hostages who do not deserve for a half a second what's been happening to them. There is a child who turned one years old yesterday as a hostage in Gaza. One quarter of their life has been spent in a tunnel. How this is not the biggest issue for civilization today still continues to boggle my mind. And Israel will have to prosecute the war as best as humanly possible. And Hamas will absolutely use these hostages as human shields. If they don't care about their own uh, civilians, the Palestinians, they sure as heck don't care about the Israelis. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Arya Lightstone. I always appreciate you coming on. Thank you. The U.S. Navy says a Houthi drone launched from Yemen blew up a couple of miles from U.S. and commercial ships in the Red Sea yesterday. This just hours after the White House threatened the Iran-backed group with military action if it didn't stop its attacks. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says there has been 25 Houthi attacks against merchant vessels in the area since November 18th. Ryder says the U.S. is committed to deterring further attacks and providing safeguards in the waterway. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced Operation Prosperity Guardian last month. The U.S.-led coalition is set up to protect commercial vessels using the trade route. Head of the U.S. Navy Operations Vice Admiral Brad Cooper said the multi-nation task force is defensive in nature and separate from any military action the U.S. might take against the Houthis. Here's the Pentagon spokesman on the Houthi threat yesterday. Do not seek any broader conflict with, with Iran. We don't seek conflict uh, with, with these groups, but we're not going to uh, stand aside and allow our forces to be uh, threatened uh, without ensuring that we're properly protecting that is something that we're all taking seriously and that requires collective action. Shipping company Maersk has rerouted four out of five container vessels in the Red Sea. The ships will head back towards the Suez Canal and make the long trip around Africa to avoid attack. Numerous Houthi attacks are disrupting global trade and raising fears of a fresh bout of global inflation as shipping rates soar. When Maersk halted its Red Sea shipping, five ships had already crossed the canal and were about to travel south past Yemen. This left crews and tens of thousands of containers in limbo. A fifth Maersk vessel hasn't been rerouted yet, but a spokesperson said it would not sail past Yemen. Maersk has imposed extra surcharges, adding $700 to the cost of a standard 20-foot container traveling from China to northern Europe. Redirecting ships around the southern tip of Africa is expected to cost up to $1 million extra in fuel for each round trip between Asia and northern Europe. At the White House confirmed yesterday that North Korea has supplied Russia with short-range ballistic missiles used for its war effort in Ukraine. This according to newly declassified intelligence. National Security spokesman John Kirby told reporters the United States will raise the issue with the United Nations Security Council. Kirby referred to the arms transfer as a significant and concerning escalation. 
In return for its support, we assess that Pyongyang is seeking military assistance from Russia, including fighter aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, armored vehicles, ballistic missile production equipment or materials, and other advanced technologies. He added that the United States would impose additional sanctions against those facilitating the arms deals. As for their inventory now, um, uh, again, I want to be careful here, but we, I would just put it this way, that we haven't seen anything that would tell us that Russia is not still reliant on munitions and missiles from, from North Korea. Kirby confirmed Russian forces launched at least one of these North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine on December 30th, which landed in an open field, followed by multiple missile attacks on January 2nd as part of a broader wave of heavy airstrikes. Kirby did not specify the exact type of missiles, but said they had a range of about 550 miles. Other countries, including Britain and South Korea, have condemned the use of the missiles. South Korea previously reported in November that North Korea may have supplied the ballistic missiles to Russia as part of a larger arms deal, which also included anti-tank and anti-air missiles, artillery and mortar shells, and rifles. Both Moscow and Pyongyang have denied conducting any arms deals, but vowed last year to deepen military relations. Reports out of Ukraine state Russia recently launched some of its most intense strikes on its soil since the start of the war almost two years ago. On Tuesday, Kyiv said that Russia had launched hundreds of attack drones and missiles of various kinds at cities across Ukraine since December 29th. Cost MNS, NTD News. Up next, a push to remove former President Trump from ballots in two more states. Who is the liberal advocacy group behind the challenges? Where will AI take us in 2024? Can it make our driving experience better? We explore the possibilities of this tech with an officer at a development company in just a moment. Welcome back. More attempts to keep former President Donald Trump off the ballot. Groups of voters from Illinois and Massachusetts yesterday filed motions to remove Trump from the 2024 ticket. The two states joined other states where the former president faces a challenge to his candidacy under the 14th Amendment's so-called insurrectionist ban. In Illinois, the challenge asks the Illinois Board of Elections to bar Trump from appearing on the ballot, citing his perceived role in the January 6th Capitol breach. The liberal advocacy group Free Speech for People stands behind the challenges in both states. The group has also backed similar efforts in Oregon, Michigan and Minnesota. The challenges come as the Supreme Court is widely expected to review a state court ruling in Colorado, which found that Trump is ineligible to run for office. Any decision from the justices could settle the matter for the entire nation. Trump will remain on the Colorado ballot at least until the appeal is ruled on. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy signed a bill allowing 17-year-olds the right to vote in primaries. 
The bill, dubbed the New Voter Empowerment Act, was signed yesterday. It allows any registered voter who turns 17 by the time of a primary election to vote in that primary. But it only applies if they turn 18 on or before the next general election. Governor Murphy says the new law will help empower the next generation and strengthen our democracy. 19 other states and Washington, D.C. have similar laws. Some Republicans are using government funding as leverage to confront the illegal immigrant crisis at the border. And earlier I spoke to Epic Times reporter Lawrence Wilson to discuss the brewing standoff over border security and government funding. Uh, Democrats have not been willing to budge on the provisions of H.R. 2, which uh, Republicans see as just common sense reforms to close down the illegal traffic over the border. And they're likely to put up a fight about it. Now, the GOP does not have the muscle uh, in terms of numbers uh, to push these reforms through the Senate. Uh, but they could have the votes in the House to block legislation on funding. So. Uh, we're hearing now that uh, Speaker Johnson may reach out directly to President Biden to try to get some movement on this, but really uncertain at this point. Right, yeah, and you talk about a standoff in the works and Democrats not willing to budge. Is there any common ground that they may be able to put forward, the Democrats, to appease Republicans and get some status there to make them happy enough to get the government keep running? Well, some Republican congressmen told us down at Eagle Pass that uh, they were willing to compromise on some aspects of H.R. 2, but Remain in Mexico is really the, the, the big stick point for Republicans. They also want to see changes to asylum. So it, there could be some common ground, but so far they haven't been able to find it. Remember, they've been negotiating on this for well over a month in the Senate and haven't been able to come together. So this is a tough one. Lawrence Wilson, national politics reporter at the Epic Times. Thank you. U.S. Customs and Border Protection have reopened four southern border crossings as reports of illegal immigration have notably dropped. This comes as more than five dozen House Republicans traveled to the southern border this week. Entity's Jason Blair is on the ground to give us some of the latest updates. Yeah, I'm here in Eagle Pass, Texas. I'm out front of a holding area where a lot of the immigrants that cross over the border illegally are taken here. Uh, now, as you can see, there's really not much going on. When I'm told that normally this place has been packed with people, uh, we were also here yesterday, pretty much the same situation. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of activity. However, we have seen some people today and yesterday cross over, uh, but it's just been pretty slow compared to how things used to be, I'm told. Now, just uh, on Wednesday, Representative Tony Gonzalez hosted about 64 Congress members that came over here. He did say at a, at a press conference that two weeks ago, they were seeing thousands of people and things have just really changed. As far as to why that is, uh, there has been some speculation that the Mexican government did make some changes to try to curb the influx over to the U.S. border. I did hear some people um, around the area here say that they are a little skeptical that it's just some kind of you know New Year's break that things are going to go back to normal in the in the coming days. I did reach out to the Department of Homeland Security see if they had any comments on the sudden change. I have not heard back from them yet. Uh, so I suppose we'll just see if things, uh, you know, change in the coming days. We'll just have to, you know, see what happens.
AI technology has been seeing massive growth recently as developers race to make and apply AI to consumer needs. Companies are looking to showcase AI technology in this year's Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, in various products ranging from vehicles to PCs and smartphones. Funding for these projects has surged in the last year, increasing to more than $23 billion through December 2022, according to PitchBook data. And here to tell us about some expected applications of AI in 2024 is Christopher Alexander. He's the Chief Analytics Officer at Pioneer Development Group. Good morning, Christopher. Thank you for coming on the show. Good morning. So what are some of the notable developments on the horizon for AI this year? Well, I think it's important to look at, at the past year and AI is now a kind of a known entity. I think AI was probably a year of, of in 2023 of fear and wonderment. And in 2024, I think it's gonna kind of retrench and, and people are really gonna understand the practical applications and, and how it's gonna affect them in their workplace and their daily lives. Yeah, I mean, even I am understanding the applications. I just put a handwritten note into Bard tinkering with it the other night, and it just, it can read it, it can transcribe it for me. I mean, it's really amazing. And we can even expect to see some text to video applications coming out this year. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there's a really, really uh, well-regarded project. It's called Runway. And um, they seem to be, it's, it's, there's another one as well. And they're kind of the leader in, in, in text to video. Um, uh, this kind of what they call it as multimodal, I think it's probably better understood as multimedia, is sort of, I think, the next big breakthrough that you'll see in 2024, where you can now, uh, you know, give instructions and, and have both, both text and imagery, whether it's still or moving in, uh, in a, in a chatbot. Yeah, that is wild. And we do have to keep in mind that there is the risk of deep fakes, especially in an election cycle. I mean, we've seen this happen overseas in Argentina. Candidates were using them to attack their political rivals. And then even in Slovakia, they had one where they showed a competing candidate say that they were going to raise the price of beer. So probably something that should raise some red flags for people if they see that. But now tell us a little bit more about this Project Greenlight by Google to help with traffic congestion. Sure, and, and it, whether it's military logistics or street traffic, uh, this is one of the areas where um, AI has been extremely effective. Um, and it's, it's because of uh, the machine learning and pattern recognition capabilities that AI can sort of, sort of quarterback. So Greenlight's a Google project. I think the biggest American city is Seattle. Um, and typically you have very expensive sensors, you have community input, uh, when it comes to traffic signals being good or bad, and then traffic engineers go and look at a certain problem. And you can, as you can guess, that's pretty, pretty cumbersome. What Greenlight does is it anonymizes who the people are, you know, the cars, but it's able to look at traffic flows, look at the, the lights, and in near real time, make recommendations to the traffic engineers to look at what to implement. So it's just um, augmenting the, the, uh, the city traffic engineers and it's doing an incredible job at, at pattern recognition and coming up with recommendations at a speed that, that a human being simply could never do. That is really great. And if there's any way that AI can help just turn a light green, if there are no other cars anywhere nearby, that may help save a little bit of time here. And we also know that there's a lot of developments in the works for these chatbots. People may be able to even develop their own AI chatbot apps. Like if a real estate agent wants to just toss in, let's say, a couple pictures and a little blurb, the AI can then start and go and write a full description for the property. So it's pretty cool stuff there too. But are there any areas where AI is not really being used that it could benefit society? Yeah, yes, I, but I think, I think it's a matter of the state of the technology. 
rather than the lack of imagination on how to apply it. Um, you know, right now, uh, when you work with an AI chatbot, initially you're kind of astounded by it, and then you realize you've got to do quite a bit of training with it, and then you realize, you know, kind of 30% of the things I need to do, I can. I, this is really helping me, and the other stuff, it's more more time than it than it's worth. So, so I, I think the, the most important future application is just improving how people interact with AI across a range of tasks to make it more useful. Yeah, I think it's I, kind of, you know, the, the thing that gets you to the thing, if, if you will. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of it comes down to just knowing which AI to use. Perplexity can give you those links if you're trying to get some sources. Bard is better at some of these visuals that can it can transcribe for you, like I mentioned. And also just ChatGPT, it's really good at the language and really putting together a nice blurb for you if you're trying to draft something up or polish it. Do you have anything else for us here? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, another great tool is, is Jasper uh, AI. It's more of a marketing tool, but what it does that's so fascinating is it learns the tone of language that you use uh, for your brand or, or whatever you're working with and then speaks with your brand voice. So I think it actually rests atop, and you're going to see a lot of this, it, it rests atop of, uh, of uh, probably ChatGPT and a few other, the main kind of AI engines, but it just helps you work through the prompts that you just described earlier uh, more effectively to get something uh, you can use faster. Jasper, okay, that's a new one to me. And you know, with ChatGPT4 out now, this stuff is getting pretty powerful, so we gotta keep an eye on it. Chief Analytics Officer at Pioneer Development Group, Christopher Alexander, thank you. Thank you. The ads you see online may get a little less creepy soon. Google is rolling out a test to eliminate cookies that track your behavior in its new Chrome browser. Cookies are the little programs that track you on the internet and then why you see ads for genes second after you search for them. Instead of using cookies, Google has its own software tools designed to replace them. The company wants to get rid of cookies in Chrome by the end of the year. Some are cheering the change, while others worry Google could corner the market for targeted advertising by eliminating third-party cookies. For this initial test rollout, only 1% of Google Chrome users will be impacted. And Verizon customers could get $100 thanks to the settlement of a class action lawsuit. The lawsuit alleged Verizon was charging customers undisclosed administration fees in a, quote, deceptive and unfair manner. Verizon denies any wrongdoing but agreed to pay $100 million to settle the lawsuit. Current and former customers charged administrative fees between January 1st and 2016 and November 8th of 2023 are eligible to receive up to $100. Those who are eligible will be notified via email or receive a letter in the mail, but you must first file a claim by April 15th to receive a payment. Yeah, this class action lawsuit payments, you can just get the companies off the hook. They don't have to yeah. actually say anything about wrongdoing. Well, that's right. So because Verizon didn't actually admit to any wrongdoing despite the settlement, right? So people can either fill out this two-page form um, and agree to not be able to sue Verizon afterwards, or they just don't settle for the settlement and they can sue Verizon separately. Yeah, we've seen a couple of these. Facebook had one recently. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we have to wrap up our show on this note, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.